Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. So have you ever thought to yourself, have I sinned too badly to be forgiven by God? I mean, perhaps by that you meant or you thought or you felt, have I sinned too many times the same sin over and over and over again? that I could truly be forgiven of God? How can I know if I'm sincere as a Christian if I sin so many times? Maybe I can sin too badly to be forgiven by God. Or perhaps you've done something that, particularly in our culture today, might be a very hideous and horrible, nasty, evil sin. Is there a sin too great that I can receive mercy? Or perhaps, have you sinned too badly to be forgiven by God? Me speaking to another. You speaking to another. Are there people that we honestly have in our minds that we might grieve if God were to give them mercy? Is there an unpardonable sin in our culture, in our world, in our society where it would almost feel today like it is sinful to, to even contemplate mercy? A kind of justice seeking that has no room for mercy, that is. Feelings like this, you see, aren't overtly surprising if you come to think about it, since our human relationships all throughout society are so vulnerable. We see them failing all the time, breaking apart. Any major breach of trust could quickly destroy a relationship, even one that's decades old. Everything can seem flimsy in our tenuous relationship to our society, to our homes, to our marriages, to our jobs. I suspect that more than we would think, we really do wonder, if not conclude, that we can sin too badly to be forgiven by God. And so this is the age-old question that is explicitly raised by our passage today. And unequivocally, listen to me, unequivocally the answer is yes. There is an unpardonable sin, clearly. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So what is he talking about? What kind of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? What is it? And if you look at how this passage has been used, it almost becomes as fluid as a person's own situation or our culture's situation. You can pretty much take this passage out of its context, and especially, again, it's almost laborious, I often have to say this, out of the context of redemptive history in the scripture, out of the context of the prophetic expectations, the teachings of Moses, you can pull it all out of there as if this were some new religion even though Christ and the apostles made it very clear this is not a new religion, this is the same religion given to Adam and Eve and on, onward. 
Therefore, you'd need to read it and think about it in that light. But we could pull it out and just about the spirit, the spirit of life, the spirit of goodness, the spirit, the spirit, the spirit, my spirit, your spirit, my truth, your truth. All of a sudden, without this revelation-based context that we go to God and to that history of God revealing himself, we could pretty much make this to mean anything. I grew up thinking it was suicide. Now I see other interpretations. What is it to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, here's the thing. How we understand this will have huge implications for us, whether we're aware of it or not. So let's go, let's do some analysis, and let's answer the question. Lord, please help us to get this right. For your sake, help us to get it right. Your glory, that you would be vindicated as true to who you say you are, both a just and merciful God. And Lord, do it that we might be saved from ourselves, from one another, but mostly from you. By your grace and mercy, we pray. Amen. So we have this historical event told in verse 22 and following of the healing or the exorcist of of a a person there. This demon-possessed person who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And the reaction is clear. Two reactions. Very different black-white reactions. Reaction number one is people were absolutely stunned. I mean, this wasn't a casual thing. This person whom they had lived with and for years and years who was viewed as in all these ways immediately was a new person, a new creation. They were besides themselves, you could interpret this Greek word. And their conclusion, or at least thought, was might this be the son of David? Translated the Messiah, the Messiah. I mean, those words, the Messiah, you you hear that word, right? I mean, this son of David, which was all throughout Jewish writings, equivalent to the type who would become the real person, the Messiah, the savior of the whole world. (laughs) I mean, this 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 is not a little statement here. Might this be the Messiah exercising his royal act of cleansing, of healing, of recreating? And then in verse 24, you have the absolute opposite reaction. Defensive, cynical. You know that well too, don't you? He could not cast out the demons except by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. They perceived it as a wicked act. I mean, how does somebody do that? Uh, You know, don't be so quick to judge. I mean, couldn't it be interpreted for someone to extend mercy to someone who is horribly, horribly 
wrong? I mean, he was demon-possessed. That is to say, this was someone who was viewed as evil, under the influence of evil. And God would have mercy on him? Oh, of course not. God is a God of justice. He should have killed him, stoned him. It was absurd. (laughs) And so what do they say? Oh, this has to be on the side of Satan to heal a Satan-possessed person. I know it sounds wacky, but something's going on here. I mean, why wouldn't they rejoice? Well, probably the same as it is today. We don't rejoice if it's a threat to our authority, a threat to our power, whatever that power and however, whatever we leverage to get that power, whether it's economic, whether it's political, whether it's popular, whether it's, you could go on and on. He has to be of Satan. And so what does Jesus do? Well, (laughs) he looks at them in verse 28 and says, you really don't get it, do you? Upon you, the kingdom of God has come. Can't you see it? The kingdom of God has come down on earth. This, of course, is the prominent theme of Matthew's gospel. According to Christ, the miracles were all intended to demonstrate the coming of the kingdom of God. They were meant to be authentications of his, re, of his truth and his reality as the Messiah. This kingdom of God theme, 4, 17, 5, 20, 7, 21, 2, 23, 12, 8. I could go on and on and on and on. It keeps coming back and back and back in Matthew's gospel. kingdom of God has come and there is these very radically different black and white responses. Hold on to that. First, look at the argument that Christ offers to the truth of that statement. The kingdom of God has come. And he makes this point in verse 25 through 27 that the kingdom is divided The kingdom divided is what you're really asking the crowds to believe, speaking to the Pharisees. He says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, then by whom? By your sons cast out them out. Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God, there's that key word that's very important right there. If this is a work of the spirit of God, a work as we will see, he will quote Isaiah as as his proof text, if this is that work of the Spirit of God that Isaiah spoke of that literally binds evil on earth, then you are witnessing the kingdom of God come to earth. Everything you and your tradition have said you've been looking for since Adam and Eve. It's finally come. That's what's happening here. In other words, you see the absurdity again. We've talked about absurdity, you know, the absurdity of last week and how he keeps showing the absurdity of these rejection, rejections of him. But here we see it again. How absurd would it be 
that Satan would turn against himself. Like a government destroying its own soldiers, Satan might be evil, but he's not stupid. In the so many words, Christ says, the wise prince would not pursue a self-destructive course. Pharisees, your objections are absurd. And then in verse 29, he makes yet another argument. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. You see the absurdity again. You know, if you walk into a house, it's kind of obvious and there's someone there who can defend it. You got to plunder him. You got to bind him. You got to do something in order that you can start picking up his junk and walking out the door. And that's his point. This is absurd. A kingdom can't be divided against itself. That's your argument. And so therefore, back to that reaction, black or white, verse 30, he concludes, look, you gotta understand something here. This reaction to me, because of who I am, the Messiah, it, it, it just can't be casual either way. There's no middle ground. The one who is not with me is against me, he says. You're either being gathered unto me or you're being scattered from me. There is no neutrality. This is that kind of an issue. It is black or white. Really it is. There's not a lot in life that's black and white, but this is it. He's either Messiah or he is of the devil. There is no space for middle ground. And that's when he says this condemnation. That's when he gives us this passage, which is the much debated passage, a contrast by comparison. What would be the contrast? He says, quote, every sin and blasphemy with reference to men, man, as in is the data in the Greek. You know, it's this idea that, that, that anything that we blaspheme with respect to what we do, it's our action, will be forgiven. Wow, that's amazing. You mean anything? Blasphemy against life itself? That is to say to speak against it, to act against it, to kill someone, to slander someone? On it goes, the Ten Commandments. Really? Every sin and blasphemy that humanity can do <laughs> will be forgiven? You mean there is nothing you can do, nothing you can say at all that can't be forgiven? Yes. That's the first line. We forget that because we always go to the second line. And then the second line, but there it is. I knew it. He's hedging his bet somewhere. Something's got to be qualification here. But blasphemy with respect to the spirit, not humanity, man, but the spirit, the kind of blasphemy with reference to the spirit, well, that will not be forgiven. It's interesting. It won't mean anything, I'm not gonna take the time, but this with reference to was a dative 
And now this reference to is a genitive. All that grammar speak means is very significant. One speaks to what humanity can do or will do and anything that they can do and will do can be forgiven. The other with respect to the spirit is the honor or the acceptance. It's, you could translate it, well, just of the spirit. Blasphemy with respect to the spirit, well, that can't be forgiven. To reject a man is one thing, but to reject the Holy Spirit, you see, is another. So what does all this mean? Well, he quotes Isaiah. And the short and skinny of all this quoting is this. Of all people, the Pharisees had access to the prophetic tradition. Of all people, they had studied it and they had even probably memorized most of it. <laughs> of all people, they should have noticed what was happening here. In the words of the Acts, the apostles in Acts 3, those who reject Christ will be destroyed. And listen to this, that is respecting the prophet, the one that Moses prophesied about, who would be anointed by the spirit in order to write the law on our hearts. That begins this tradition, not begins, it actually comes all the way back to Genesis and the hovering spirit and the spirit of God who came upon the garden and all of this stuff where there was a sacrifice for sin and all of this, it's been going on for, since the beginning of redemptive history. And so there he quotes Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse out of the tradition, out of the lineage, out of the promises, out of the covenants, that's what that means and a branch from his root shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. It's a spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord and a delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This is someone who's perfect basically. And he won't judge with human eyes, he'll judge with God's eyes. It goes on to say, i.e. it'll be God now, not just fickle humans and he will have the power to decide justice. He will strike the earth and plunder it where he wants. He will kill the wicked when he wants, but it goes on this prophecy in the tradition of Isaiah for this servant. And later he says, whom I uphold my chosen and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him yet also for mercy. And he talks about this kind of justice that's gonna be brought to the nations, bringing about a, justy, a, a justice that will result in mercy. I will give you as a covenant to the people, he concludes, a light for the nations. Let's stop for just a second and think about what's going on. What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, it means to blaspheme Christ because the whole work of the spirit, the whole purpose of the spirit is to authenticate, empower, and vindicate the Messiah. Everything about the Holy Spirit is 
in reference to this son of man. You see, you can blaspheme the person Jesus, he's saying. The person. But you cannot blaspheme the office that Jesus inhabits. I know that's a little weird for us, but that's what this passage says. Jesus, the man, well, you could speak of it, uh, ill of him. But Jesus, the Messiah, to reject him is an unpardonable sin. It is a sin of which you can't recover. It's a sin with eternal consequences. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's weird. Did y'all hear that? I had a weird call from my wife, and I know and it went off real quick, so I think she figured, oh, no, it's not the time. She's in Atlanta right now. Um, y'all didn't need to know all that, did you? <laughs> Forget I even said it, because I know I'm going to hear about it when I get home today. Anyway, it's kind of fun. Think about the spirit here. The objective realities. What, what does the spirit do, not to us, but to, with respect to Christ? Luke 4, with, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan, was led by the spirit in the wilderness. You're going to see this emphasis all over the place. Hebrews, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Romans tells us, Romans 8, that he, the Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead. It all concerns this role that Jesus is here speaking about, such that to reject Christ is to reject the work of the Holy Spirit that vindicates and authenticates him as the Messiah. The ministry of the Messianic proclamation in the Word. John says it this way, I still have many things to say to you. This is Jesus in the Gospel of John. But you cannot bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. To reject the spirit is to reject the truth about Christ. Even the word of God, which are the words of Christ now in Holy Scripture, are spoke from God by the Holy Spirit, according to 2 Peter 1. And then, of course, you think of the subjective realities of the Spirit, of which if we were to reject it, not to experience it, we would not be saved. We could not be pardoned. The ministry of illumination that gives us the heart and the mind to see. The ministry of, recon of regeneration, the new birth, the new will, the new heart that wants to see. All of this is called in our confessions the ministry of effectual calling. That kind of call that comes, that with it comes the Holy Spirit. You could, I could sit here all day long and call you, invite you to, to embrace Christ. But only by the Holy Spirit are you enabled to do so. This is basically to say, in this incredible context of throwing out a demon and saving someone, that when the Holy Spirit does these miraculous things, all miracles, to reject the Holy Spirit, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, to be cynical about that Holy Spirit, in effect to therefore reject Christ, which is the whole purpose and role of the Holy Spirit, well, that's unpardonable. And of course, of course it is, why? Well, the Spirit, says John 16, he will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
To reject the Holy Spirit, you see, is to reject Christ. Those who reject Christ then are rejected by God the Father. John 12, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me, the Father. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come as light to the world, so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in darkness. You see what he's saying? I am the way, the truth, and the life, he goes on to say in 14 of John. No one comes to the Father except through me. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. The works of what? The Holy Spirit. You see what he's saying? Our Lord here had not distinctly claimed to be more than a man. He speaks against him personally regarding him simply as a man. That's one thing. That's not what Jesus is talking about. It did not involve a great guilt as to speak against the Holy Spirit whose influence filled his human spirit and gave him as a man the power of working miracles. To reject that, well, that's, that's a bad thing. Sheldon Van Ooken, the story is still alive to me even though it was, the book was written in A Severe Mercy in 19, I think, 79. But it's the story of a person converted right here in, in New Haven converted by interactions with the great C.S. Lewis. And once he finally took that leap of faith, he then confessed what, what made him do it. He'd come to realize that, that there is no way he could continue to live his life with a casual relationship or understanding of this Jesus. That it was not a casual conversation or reflection. In his words, it is not possible to incidentally be a Christian. The fact of Christianity must be overwhelmingly first or nothing. You see, that's what Jesus is saying here. There is, is a singular sin that is unpardonable. And it makes sense because what you're rejecting in effect when you reject Christ is forgiveness itself. <laughs> he is the mercy of God revealed, the grace of God revealed. He is the justice of God satisfied without destroying us. Speaking of the work he did on the cross. To reject Jesus is to reject both the justice of God that is also reconciled with the mercy of God. You can have justice, you can have mercy, but only in Christ can you have both justice and mercy. This should change everything about Christianity and the way we even seek mercy in this world or justice in this world. The two are always together. We'll come back to that. But it's just not possible to be an incidental Christian. A nominal Christian, in other words. It's either black or white. It's either hot or cold, nothing lukewarm. That gets spit out of the Lord's mouth, according to Revelations. This is a catastrophic or a cataclysmic event, either one, but it's not both. And so we go back to the question. Have I, we, sinned so badly to be forgiven by God? Well, the answer today is, here it is, possibly, yes, 
but not yet. <laughs> I know you're going to get mad at me for this, but this is, I think, the best I could put it. Possibly, yes, I have sinned too badly to be forgiven by God, but not yet. What do I mean? Well, the only sin that is impardonable is to reject Christ. If you are now rejecting Christ, not embracing him as your savior and Lord, then possibly you have committed the unpardonable sin. But not yet, because you're not dead if you're listening to me right now. There's still time. There's still time to embrace him as your savior and Lord. Now, how do we get to this place of thinking that we have sinned too badly to be forgiven by God? Well, I think part of it is we attribute human qualities to God. We start to personalize him as we are, and we see God in a way that we are, and all of a sudden, justice can exist without mercy offered in our smaller version of justice. Or mercy can be offered in a way to destroy justice in our smaller version of mercy. Or, and we could just go on, the, everybody I know finally has a limit to how much you can sin against them. So I guess God would be like that too. You see what I mean? We could personalize very easily. It's almost inherent to our a sin of the Imago Dei that we would, we would transport back to the image we are the image bearer of the one whose image we're meant to bear, but we begin to transfer our attributes up to him in that transaction. We need to be careful what I'm trying to say. God isn't like us. He's just other. We call it holy. He's other. He's an other being. He's not like us. We should always resist transferring us as if to God as an attribute in our experience. Religious traditions seem to enforce it. There's a lot of, I guess there's a lot of motivation for religion to, to misrepresent this passage today. It's a very powerful thing to get you to do what I want you to do if I can convince you that you will never be forgiven if you do this. And you can see where that could go in ways that could give people like the Pharisees a lot of power. In fact, they would say that all the time in so many words. They would have a list of sins that they personally don't struggle with and they would direct it out to others and they would contrive scripture to say, or the traditions to say so many words, if you do this, you're going to hell. I think we've been around that kind of religion, most of us, somewhere, somehow, where there's this way too simplistic, do this, you go to hell. I can see it coming out like this. We know to, to, uh, to sin against the Holy Spirit is to reject or resist the Holy Spirit in sanctification. So if you're not sanctified, you're not ultimately going to heaven. To get there, we might create a whole new place where we go after we die to give us some more chances to go to heaven. I think that's purgatory, basically. As much as there's good stuff about that book and all, but that's a concept that's, hmm. You see, traditions can leverage it. 
Maybe it's we don't want to believe evil people can be forgiven. Honestly, we're tempted to believe we can reach the point of no return is that, in humanly speaking, some of the most horrible sins can seem so bad that you just can't forgive that. God would not be a good God if he forgave it. I've heard that more now than I've ever heard it in my ministry. People rejecting Christianity because of grace. Seriously, had a meal about a year ago. Why can't you believe in God, the God of the Christian faith? Because of this notion of grace. I like that person. He was being honest, really honest. Because we were talking about some persons that are pretty heinous. People that you just really feel justified in hating. And he was being honest. How could God be just and give that person mercy? Now, don't tell me you hadn't thought like that, or at least had some sympathies like that. Here again, the gospel, according to Christ, especially the cross of Christ, has a conception of an eternal justice that is compatible with an eternal mercy. Without diminishing, as we'll see in a minute, the role of government even in the civil sphere to discipline those, to be the vengeance of God on earth. And for those who are elect, guess what that's gonna do? It's gonna be a discipline that will move them to repentance and faith and the discovery of the mercy of Christ at the cross. For those who are not the elect in the words of the scripture, they will be hardened by that discipline. And it will be a first installment of the ultimate and eternal discipline of God for everlasting life. It can go in either direction, all according to the work of the Holy Spirit, you see? Maybe it's because we confuse feeling forgiven with forgiven. We may be tempted to think we can't be forgiven because we just don't feel it. Although feelings, of course, are important, and we would love to see that that would be part of our growth and our capacity to experience actually forgiveness and grace and mercy. Sometimes it can be a very long process. There are conscious habits, conscience habits that are hard to break. So maybe it's we attribute human qualities to God that makes us feel like we could sin too badly or somebody else could sin too badly to be forgiven. Maybe it's because of religious tradition. Maybe it's because we just can't, we can't reconcile mercy with justice. Maybe it's because we don't feel it. Whatever it is, and the list grows for sins that are unforgivable, doesn't it? We rationalize by categorizing certain sins. We miss some serious biblical truths and all of a sudden we've got this sin that's unforgivable. So how does this all play out, this passage? Maybe you have, you say, well, no, I, I believe as a doctrine that, I believe that, that there's no unforgivable sin except to reject Christ. That would be the conclusion of this passage, basically. But, you know, have you ever thought that God was not on our side because of something you've done? Isn't that in effect 
to still live under this idea that there are some unpardonable sins? Maybe it's the habitual sin that you just continue to experience and you keep struggling, but you continue to experience it that makes you think, you know, I don't know that this is forgivable. Whatever it is, we then, what are we doing in that, that little transaction? Hope you're following this, it's gonna get important. In this little transaction, you've confused punishment, I'll use the cliche, punishment from discipline. It may be true that your sin has consequences. It may be true that God is doing something in your life, but the intent of that is not to destroy you if you put your faith in Christ. The intent of that is to heal you. And so we hear Hebrews says, for the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. For God is treating you as sons. Now I would say daughters. For what person is there whom his father does not discipline? And so you should expect, you should expect that God loves you enough that there may be consequences, there may be situations that are intended to heal you of your sin. Because sin always is self-destructive to the glory of God and to your own image. But that's not the same. Maybe you fear of doing something that would curse you forever. Maybe you do have in your mind, I could never be a Christian and do that. First, don't ever say that. <laughs> That's scary. You know, there's a passage in Galatians that whenever you're to come to a person uh, to rebuke them or correct them, you look first to yourself, lest you too be tempted. The point being, there is no sin honestly, that you're incapable of. How would that change the way you think of someone sinning in a way that you would think you could never sin that way? You see how that passage in Galatians changes the way you would treat him? Not with a superiority over him or her. These, these concepts are crazy important. Maybe the fear of doing something that would curse you forever then because of that notion it's interesting, and I quote this often in pastoral counseling, when someone's struggling with a sin and struggling to believe that God for, could forgive them, and it happens often, I'll quote the, the, uh, the consensus that our church has for 350 years, it goes all the way back to Gustin, fifth century, and it's this, he's talking about people who are going to heaven here. People who are going to heaven by a 350 year Puritan document that we have adopted more or less. And here's what it says. Nevertheless, about those who are going to heaven, they may through temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them and the neglect of the means of their preservation fall into grievous sins, not cute sins, grievous sins. And for a time continue therein whereby they incur God's displeasure, discipline and grieve his Holy Spirit, grieve the Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, that is their assurance, etc. They have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. These are the people who could still be going to heaven <laughs> because why? It goes on to describe how they will persevere in faith. 
in Christ, not in faith in themselves. The perseverance of the saints is persevering in repentance and faith. And there, and it's not to give you a license to sin. This is the point of Romans. In chapter 5, he says, he says basically everything this sermon's saying, Paul does. He's saying there is no boundary, there's no limit to grace. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more, quote, end quote. No limit. And then he turns right around and says, but this is not a license to sin. In fact, those who've experienced that grace will find that they are also experiencing the grace of the Holy Spirit that not only converts them and enables them to embrace that grace, but will also continue to persevere in seeking to walk with God. Even if there are seasons like this described in our confession where you would look at a person and think they don't have it. And they might not. We don't know. None of us knows for sure. Only God knows whether the kernel of faith is there. When they are acting out, there is, at least on the surface, reasons to be concerned. We don't treat it casually in the church if someone's falling into sin and going into a direction that's bad. Because we don't know what it means. We want to restore them to Christ, though. But we would never in our minds conclude about any human being in the world that as long as they're breathing still, there is not yet still opportunity to not commit the unpardonable sin, which is to reject Christ. That's it. So let's just ask real quickly what this could mean for your life. So if God can forgive all sins, except of course the sin of rejecting God's forgiveness is offered in Jesus Christ, where injustice and mercy are satisfied, both, how then should we live? I want this to get real practical for you. One, we should receive God's gift of forgiveness by faith in Christ alone. If you haven't done that, this is not a casual conversation. This is not something you can play around with and flitting it about in your brain and looking into philosophy. No, we really need to go together to the scripture. If you have any questions at all, do not delay. This is not a casual conversation. If it's true, it's eternally consequential. So please take a step, that leap and say, text me or any of the pastors and say, I want to talk. It'll be a very friendly, non-judgmental conversation. I promise. Number two, we should forgive others as God forgave us. If the first one is, if God can forgive us, then we should forgive ourselves. Actually, that's the second one. I didn't say that, did I? Sorry. The second one is, if God can forgive you, Christian, then you should be able to forgive yourself. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ, by grace we have been saved, and raised him up with him, and seated with him in the heavenly places, etc., etc. Christian, are you struggling to forgive yourself? Well, think about that. That is, in effect, to experientially reject Christ as a somehow insufficient for you. If God can forgive you as infinite as the chasm that sin created with you and God, more so than with you and any other person, because God is so much loftier and higher than anybody else. If God can forgive you, 
and we know now definitively he can forgive you of any sin other than to reject Christ, then why wouldn't you forgive yourself? And let me tell you why that's important. It's important for you. It's going to reinterpret your struggles and your sufferings in life. Either it's God's punishing me and this is a forestallment of hell, or this is God loving me and he's disciplining me to save me from my sins. All based on that assurance issue. And on it goes. But it also is going to impact your ability to forgive others. We should forgive others as God forgave us, the scripture says in Colossians 3. There is no exception to who we ought to forgive. I want to say that again. There is no exception. That is radical. I got it. That is not casual. That is not incidental Christianity. That is a radical, radical kind of thing to say, if you know what I'm saying. I'm thinking right now coming into church of the Emmanuel AMC Church in Charleston and those members who forgave. They sought justice. They wanted justice. They see justice, though, through the lens of a Christian as not only the restoration of society, not only the vengeance due to those who were slaughtered in that church while they were praying, but they saw it as a means of saving the perpetrator. And they prayed for him. And they forgave him. That is so powerful. If anyone had the right not to forgive, it would have been the members of that church, the nine, and as they remember the nine. We should forgive others as God forgave us. I want to ask you, Christian, is there someone, honestly, that you have not forgiven? Is there someone that you just cannot bring it to yourself to forgive? You want to pray for the power of forgiveness, a power that will transform not only the world, but you. It's the only power that's going to bring you ultimate peace. When you reconcile this justice and mercy together, where you even see justice as a means towards mercy, perhaps. And it's going to change the way you think about the person. It's going to change the way you, you pray. It's going to change the way you interact. Your words will be different. They won't be filled with hate. They'll be filled with righteous anger, but compassion. It just totally changes the game. Oh, that we had this kind of Christianity in our world right now. That for lesser things, way lesser things than what happened at Emmanuel, we hate people. And we would delight in their going to hell, if the truth be known. This thing's getting radical. I'm getting uncomfortable, aren't you? Matthew 18, Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, he says. Peter, as many as seven times. And Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times. I say to you, 70 times seven. <laughs> maybe it's a father, maybe it's a mother, brother, sister. Those kind of sins go deep. 
Maybe it's someone in our society that you think has brought the whole world to hell in a handbasket. Maybe it's, I could go on. Those who aren't experiencing that forgiveness of God fully cannot forgive others. That's the point. There's a way to do both justice and mercy. Well, I'll leave it at that. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Those who were astonished and said, might he be the Messiah, were living that prophecy. Those who rejected him had rejected the prophets and all the revelation of God that would have set them free. It's that radical. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.